Hello and welcome to A Little Perspective with Will Sigmund. Today I have a very special guest and uh, we became friends via Twitter, actually via Snapchat and then Twitter. Um, and we actually got to meet in real life and uh, we, we continue to be friends. Welcome to the show, uh, designer Mike Rundle. Hey, thanks Will. Appreciate it. I'm excited yeah. to be here. Yeah, thank you for coming on. So you're our, our inaugural guest. Do you feel honored? <laughs> I feel I feel honored, and I feel high amounts of pressure. I'm excited to uh, to be the first, and hopefully, I can set the bar as high as possible. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure you will. I have no doubt. Um, so why don't we get into a little bit about you, um, your background as a designer, what led you to be. Uh, drawn to design, um, and some of their, you know, accomplishments and things like that. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, you know, what, you know, when I was talking to my, my daughter, my, I have an eight year old, uh, and, and I was talking to her about, you know, how I got into design and I was telling her that I used to draw, um, sneakers and I used to draw baseball cards and I used to draw, um, this is funny. Uh, home interiors, like uh, cool, like an architectural diagrams, but not like yeah. fancy ones. I just had like grab, you know, graph paper and whatnot. Um, but yeah, I started off drawing sneakers and baseball cards because I was super into them when I was a kid. Um, I had some, I had some like really cool like gold markers. So I would draw these these baseball card designs on like eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper. And then I would like augment them to make them look shiny or with cool foil effects or whatever. Cause like I was super into baseball cards back, back yeah. when I was a kid. So like drawing these baseball cards and the different layouts and then drawing sneakers, I, sneaker ideas and whatnot. It was very much like kind of like the things I was interested in sneakers, baseball cards, you know, some video games. And I would draw stuff. It was basically like, how do I, how do I make something for myself that's like part of this world of things that I'm interested in, right? How do I yeah. how do I do sneaker designs that maybe look as cool as the ones that I coveted, but maybe couldn't you know couldn't afford to buy, you know? So it really started off with like that, and I and I would draw sneakers. I, you know, I had like hundreds of just sneakers designed, and like all these baseball cards. But you know, again, they're at like eight and a half by eleven sheets of paper, so it's more like baseball like mini posters. And I just, you know, I did that like growing up. Um, and, you know, that's obviously more like art than design. You know, I think the, the, the changeover sort of happened as we got a Mac and we got AOL. And this is like, you know, mid to late 90s. Um, and I was exposed to like design on a digital computer, like, you know, web pages and AOLs, like little graphics for all the channels and whatnot. And then I was like, oh, wow, I can make things and have them in front of myself and interact with them as like web pages. And that's sort of when I started trying to figure out how to design things for a computer, whatever that, whatever that meant. Like I didn't even know what it meant back then, you know? So I think maybe that was the, the change when I got my computer and I moved more towards like designing things versus just like general, like general art, I guess. Was the, the pivot to digital slash computer art a hurdle to overcome or was it you know did it excite you did it feel different well it, i think it was a hurdle because like back then um you know i couldn't afford photoshop 
So there was an application for the for and this is like you know Mac OS eight, right? There was there was an application for a Mac called I think um, Graphic Converter or Image Converter, one of those. And it, basically, the idea is that you could um, make you know artwork in it, sort of like a Mac Paint or an MS Paint type of thing, and then you could export it to you know whatever format, and you could bring in other images and kind of export them or whatever. So one thing I did is I downloaded the like I had a trial version of Photoshop, and back then. I think this is like, this is probably Photoshop 4. And like back then, um, the trial version of Photoshop was you could basically use it as much as you wanted, I believe, but you couldn't save. All right. You couldn't save, you know, like PSD files. You couldn't export. You couldn't do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is I would, I would work in Photoshop for hours and then I would take screenshots of like the canvas because I couldn't I couldn't save it because I didn't have like the real version. And then I would just have these screenshots. So like my, my design process was like, uh, like don't screw up and and you know don't need to recreate things because I can't save the layered version. So I was always saving or screenshotting the you know the Photoshop canvas and I would bring it into graphic converter or image converter I forget the name. And then I would save it out as like a JPEG or whatever. Um, and then that's how I sort of made like graphics for websites or, you know, oh, wow. or, or background images. Cause like I didn't have, you know, like real Photoshop, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that's sort of, you know, that it was difficult because, you know, I didn't have the, like at that time, the tools were, it was either like extremely rudimentary. Like, you know, you have like an MS paint type of thing, which is extremely rudimentary. And at the absolute highest end, you would have, uh, like Aldis Photo Maker and and all these like high end like you could buy them in a box and you can make like photo cards and stuff like that. There was no like five dollar or ten dollar graphic software, at least that I remember. It was very much like free and basically you could barely do anything with it. Or more expensive to me, who was like thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, like I couldn't really afford it. So like now there's so many there's so many options in in like our ecosystem of design where there's free software for the Mac for design, which is amazing. There's $10 and $25 and $50 price points, you know, from Affinity and other folks that are outstanding. And then, you know, you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars on Photoshop now. You can do the monthly payment plan. Um, There's other options. So, like, it's so um, accessible now. Like, you don't have to jump through these crazy hoops that I guess I felt like I needed to back when I was learning. So it's so accessible now. Like people could start off. I mean, if I could have started with like the full gamut of like ridiculous professional design tools when I was just starting out, like I don't know what that would have done for like my skill level. You know, now people start off and it's like in instant access to all this stuff that like experts are using. It's a totally different, it's a totally different scenario. It's amazing. It is. I think the same way about, you know, both of us kind of coming from a generation where we grew up some without technology, quote unquote, technology, modern technology and computers. And then we have this other foot in our, you know, mid teens to late, later life, not late life, um, but adult life. And I think there's a lot of benefit when I think about that. And some people would say this is a a curse, but I really enjoy helping friends and family or colleagues or whoever 
troubleshoot technical issues, right? And right. I think along with that one foot in one scenario and the other in the other, you gain the ability to troubleshoot on your own, and it's almost like you, you get this, uh, this special per- perspective, if you will, of how to view a problem and rather right. than just getting frustrated, you might, you know, continue to say, oh, okay, well, I can't use and save Photoshop, but I'm going to take a screenshot of it. And you kind of, you found your way around it as opposed right. to it just being like, here you go. And those are the things now that you remember, right? And those are the things that stick with you. So, you know, as far as how it would affect you, that's definitely an interesting thought because who knows what it would have done and and who knows where it would have necessarily taken you certainly not on the same path and i'm not saying that it's bad to have those things immediately because you're right what would your the skill level of the quote-unquote skill level of somebody younger now may be equal um in some aspects but they might not have some of the other kind of skills in their toolbox but um, yeah, there's I, there's this challenge of of there's I wouldn't say there's too many tools you know at all. It's amazing to see all these things, but you know, I mean, building web pages a long time ago before CSS existed, there were so many guardrails and the options were limited around what you could do with the tools, and you know that those guardrails and those limitations sort of drive your creativity and your explorations. Um, now there it's it's this idea of a paradox of choice like if you go to the store and there's only three types of candy bars you can sort of make a choice easily but if you go and there's a thousand candy bars like in a you know you go to sheets and there's a an entire aisle i'm like i don't know what snack i want right and it's sort of like that now that there's you know if you are you know younger and you're growing up with technology with smartphones um and then you want to I want to make music or I just want to post interesting things on my Instagram story or my Snapchat, or I want to go on TikTok and kind of remix uh, a video in a particular way. The, the tools to achieve those outcomes are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. They're in the app store. There's web pages, there's free stuff, there's paid stuff. I feel like, I feel like the, the number of options makes it maybe a little bit daunting to get started and I, and I think of this, I guess, through the lens of, you know, you know, building websites and building web, web applications over the last, you know, many, many years and, you know, looking at the processes today to say, build a web app and the libraries and the components and the stacks you can choose and all that stuff. It's way more complicated, right? It, like things are progressing at an accelerating rate. The number of tools to be creative is, is growing at an accelerated rate. So it's, it it makes it more it makes it stranger to stick with one tool and become an expert over a number of years when there's so many new tools coming out that maybe it makes it more difficult to kind of be an expert in one area because maybe you're always trying something new you know with web development it's a new technology stack or moving to react or a new way to pack css or whatever with creative tools it's you know not even stuff on on a mac it's, you know, web-based creative tools and then just completely phone-based creative tools that just didn't exist. You know, like there's some really interesting uh, glitch art um, applications 
for for iPhone for Android, where you can basically take a very sort of regular rudimentary video of whatever and turn it into something that looks like it could be you know an MTV Video Music Award winner from like ten years ago, and it's just like two taps. So like you know with that power, it's it, it's no wonder that like younger folks today, people using technology today, are just making just mind blowing mind blowing stuff. It it really is mind blowing, and you know you mentioned TikTok, and I think that people around our age, I'm not trying to sound ageist or anything like that, just generationally, tend to not be as into TikTok. I've noticed. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm uh, not on TikTok. Know, <laughs> right, I should be. But. <laughs> right, and I'm, I'm, I am on it, and and my wife loves it. She and when I when I get on it, I find myself sucked in, and like it really right. sucks me in way more than any other social media, because and I saw this article which was interesting, uh, and I'll try to I'll try to find it in the show notes, um, and or send it to you, um, and that is, uh. It captivates, it's a social media that captivates both your hearing and your eyes. And right. so we're at this crossroads, if you will, uh, where Instagram has was capturing your ears, sorry, your eyes, but not your ears. Right. And same with, you know, like Twitter. Um, and so you can kind of do those things a little bit more passively. But when you have a medium like TikTok where it has to capture both, it causes you to be more immersed and enamored with it. And that is the machine that is TikTok views. And yeah. it's just absolutely fascinating just as a, a case study, if you will, even if I'm not on there posting myself, because frankly, this is the first social media where I kind of did feel a little bit intimidated because oh, yeah. of yep. the amount of tools and also just the, the quality of others. Now, granted, it doesn't take uh, a, a masterpiece in order to have a viral TikTok, uh, but certainly it doesn't hurt. And right. I also, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, I totally align with you too on the, uh, what I would call choice fatigue. And it's something that as I've gotten, you know, older, as things have gotten to be more choices, I don't know if it, I would be curious to hear if you're listening and you are 25 or younger uh, as of this uh, year, which is 2021. And I'd be curious to see, do you feel choice fatigue in the market? Or is this more of a generational thing where, for you and me, we're curious about it. So it's like we're drawn to want to try every single thing and because of FOMO. Right. At least that's the way I feel. Like I at least want to like get on the social media site that just came out, right? But like Clubhouse, for example, it hasn't really gotten me. Yeah, I haven't I gotten it. But I'm on there trying to figure things out because I have FOMO. If it takes off or becomes this thing, I want to be relevant, right? Um, right and then but that's one thing i've always admired about apple at least for the most part they tend to try to uh water down that choice and i think that's a part of why they're successful 
um, and why I'm always drawn to their products because usually if I, if I only have three or four choices, I can confidently pick one without, without having FOMO about the other two or three. Right. So, um, yeah, definitely interesting perspectives there. I really liked your point about, um, not in the same words, this idea of like video being that final video plus music being that final frontier of, of consumption. Like we started off, you know, if you look at Instagram where it was just kind of square images back in the day and then Twitter was like text, these are sort of like the, the Lego blocks of content creation, right? We have some imagery that's static. We have some text, you know, basically. Um, and you know, it has evolved since then to, you know, looking at like Gowala, like check-ins, the, what, like, what is the atomic unit of the social, the social network you're on, whether it's an imagery or text, but now, like you said, with TikTok, it's combining all of these senses to the like maximum effect of it, you know, sucking you in and being super popular and immersive. And it really feels like the, the only step to go from here is is sort of into maybe augmented reality or virtual mm-hmm. reality or something like what is the next massive uh, media consumption leap that is even more immersive than say TikTok with it's like dancing audio video immersive emoji and you know effects and all that stuff like that is still you know on a screen in front of you two dimensional sort of, you know it's on a two dimensional screen right so you. Whoever I think, and, and, and maybe this is what Apple's trying to get at. I know Snap is trying to get here with all their AR, AR stuff. Like they're trying to figure out like, hey, we, you know, Apple clearly does not have the number one social network. It doesn't, they don't, you know, they try and ping and other things. Like it doesn't, <laughs> they don't have that, right? Snapchat is, you know, it was dominating for a while in this kind of shorter story-based format. But now I think a lot of companies are looking at what is the next natural step beyond TikTok that is even more immersive. And I think it's this interesting kind of play between like setting up tools for content creators to be able to dip their toes into that next frontier, whether it's AR or VR or kind of immersive kind of 3D things or whatever kind of, but it's also this spectrum against just, you know, we don't have AR goggles that are like everywhere yet. We don't have VR goggles that people can wear all the time. Like we are almost there, but like at the point when AR glasses or goggles look just like regular glasses and anybody can just put them on and have this digital overlay of all objects around them, that's, that feels like the final, uh, like the final future. It's like a weird phrase. You know, I think about, um, the the movie um, I forgot when he's in that virtual that kid is like the virtual reality uh, Ready Player One yeah exactly exactly so like that the fully immersed is like the final ultimate thing but that's just like you're never experiencing the world like you know perfect AR with glasses where you can see this digital layer on top of everything feels like a kind of the only potential next step beyond TikTok or beyond this immersive video. We're not there yet. So it's kind of like a chicken or the egg of, you know, will consumers push the need for those hardware products to get here faster because they want it? Or will hardware products kind of get here and try to drive that revolution? 
I don't know. I'm not really I'm not part of that revolution in any in any sense. I'm super excited for it since I you know I, I wear glasses and I'd be totally cool with like something on my glasses that lets me see. I don't know, like you know, the current price of a Pokemon card on top of a Pokemon card if I hold out my hand. That'd be sweet. Um, but like that feels like the only other step of of immersiveness that can come up. I, I can't. You like Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces and other kind of audio based are, you know, engaging in a number of ways for their own reasons, but they're not more immersive than TikTok, right? It's 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 missing one aspect of the medium. It's 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 audio only, versus TikTok is the entire gamut. So, you know, I feel like Clubhouse and Twitter Spaces can never, like, they can never reach the same level of popularity of immersiveness as TikTok. Um, because they're missing that visual layer, right? Like it's sort of like this, it's like a ceiling, an artificial ceiling put on top of their popularity that they can't get around. Like they can be popular up to that point, but TikTok will always be pushing forward, you know? Yeah, definitely. Uh, funny that you are kind of going in that AR, VR direction because um, and that brings up a, kind of a point I wanted to, to pivot to, which is the fact that in Ready Player One, great example. And by the way, if you haven't read the book, it's way better than the movie. And I, and I'm not one to say that lightly. I know people are always like, "Hey, I gotta read the book." Blah blah blah. <laughs> but no, like it's seriously. And I started to read Ready Player Two as well. That just came out a couple months ago. Um, and in Ready Player Two, they go even like a step further. And eventually, we get to this point where all five senses are being used and it it is so difficult to put yourself in a a situation or create like this environment and i mean literally physically like a room where you can walk around without walking into the wall when you're in this virtual world but still feel like you're literally using parts of your body and you that you can't distinguish which in a way is a little bit scary, but it also is a little, it's, it's so interesting too. But uh, what I wanted to pivot to is using that as an example, how digital media, but also through dis- digital design, sets the playing field at a level that everybody can approach. And right. I don't mean that in a uh, um, intellectual standpoint. I literally mean like in a physical standpoint. In my case, right. So um, right. I have I have recently gotten the Oculus Go. I'm mean, not the Oculus Go. The Oculus Quest Two. Absolutely recommend it. It's way better than other ones I've tried. And I'm using that thing like every day now. But it's. Something like that, just to give you like a, a hard example, uh, where you can go in and is it Machu Picchu that has the statue? I know it has right. the, the stairs, like the thousand. Yeah, okay. Well, let's just say <laughs> it, it has something that I physically wouldn't really be able to feasibly do right. with either a, a machine and or walk up a thousand stairs. But on virtual reality, I can experience it in some way that I would have never gotten to before. And vice versa, it allows me to output 
things like this podcast and things like YouTube or whatever, these digital mediums, they don't care what you look like. They don't care uh, how you do it. It's just that you can do it or figure out a way to do it. And that kind of harkens to uh, a question uh, that I, I wanted to ask you. And that is, with that in mind, when you're designing something, how much of the thought process in who is going to be using this thing are you thinking about? And is that a major component in your end product? And and I know that seems a little bit nebulous to an extent when it comes to certain things like art, but I think you kind of understand where I'm getting at with that, whether it be designing digital something on paper, just, I guess, the approachability of it. How, right. how does that factor into what you do and all the things that you've learned up to this point? Yeah, I mean, you know, I see art as pure creativity. It It is creating questions for the viewer versus design has guardrails, and the intent is to answer questions and solve problems. So design inherently has those guardrails around the problem or the medium or, or whatever off the bat. But as far as, you know, how, how am I thinking about users, that's really the only thing that matters. I mean, I design products that are used by people. And, you know, if, if, if you're not thinking about the use and the people that are using it all the time, I think, you're, I think you're failing. So, like, one thing that I like to think about all the time is at every step of the, at every step of the way, you know, as a user is kind of navigating through whatever experience or software I'm building, what anxiety do they have at that moment? What are the things they're wondering about? What are the questions in their mind? For example, you know, as we are, you know, recording audio, I have anxiety around, is it recording? Is, is, is this on? Am I muted? Am I whatever, right? So if you're not proactively thinking about the questions that people have as they're using it, and then simultaneously answering those questions before they have those problems, you're not really solving you're not really solving something for the user. Like the whole point is to make their lives easier and have, you know, lower anxiety and have a seamless approach to something that they want to get done, not introduce questions. So for example, I know there's a number of video conferencing kind of applications and we use different ones, you know, different companies and whatnot. And like regardless of, of the software, you know, one, just one example of a, of a problem is not letting you know if you are muted or unmuted until you say hover over the, hover over your face or hover over the video or whatever, right? And that's a great example of people, people will be experiencing anxiety and then hover over the menu, the, the video just to see if they're muted and make sure they feel good. Like, okay, okay, good. I'm not muted. I can cough or whatever, right? Like <laughs> they will do that you know, a hundred times a day if they, if they need to. And it's a great example of a, a failure of product design, of not anticipating that anxiety, that, that feeling of it. And that's, you know, your question about like, how often are you thinking about users? Like product design is entirely empathy for the mm -hmm. user and understanding their mental state as they're using it. And then how you can make that a, a better mental state and then solve problems. 
like I like one of the things that I experience is I have this thing uh, called I think it's called um, like external empathy or external. Um, it's basically I can't watch um, like like you know America's Best Singer or any of these performance shows on TV because I get uh, externally embarrassed on, on behalf of them. I literally can't watch them. Like I I can't I have to turn them off immediately. I can't be in the same room as um, you know these people that are on these singing shows. Uh, because I just, I, I, and it doesn't even matter if they're terrible or amazing. <laughs> it's, I can feel their anxiety and, and their, you know, their potential of embarrassment or whatever. And it makes me feel that way too. And I just can't watch it. So like, I think that's something that has helped me as a product designer is having that like high level of kind of external empathy and being able to put myself in people's shoes, you know, as they're using software, um, but you're right. As far as like the accessibility of, of, of just computer things, software, websites, or anything like that, you know, one of the really mis- big mistakes that people, that designers can make about accessibility is thinking that it's only needed for people who are differently abled. And it's not. And a great example of that is if you are making software for somebody, um, who maybe has a different mobility and they can only use one hand in a particular way. And you think that it's only made for people who have a disability about that. You're not thinking about the instance of somebody who has like a toddler in their left hand and they have their phone in their right hand and they only have one hand at that moment, right? It's this idea of uh, everybody, everybody will benefit from these accessibility, uh, the, the thinking about accessibility throughout the entire process not just folks who are differently abled and, and need to think about it like that. And it's like, it's, it's such a clear example and it's, it's really foundational to product design. Like if you're not putting yourself in people's shoes, if you're not thinking about exactly how they're going to use it at every step of the way. If you're not thinking about all the different ways that people could be using this software and, and not even just like, Oh, they have JavaScript turned on or JavaScript turned off, or it's a big monitor or a small monitor. It's also, again, like can they can they see this information? Can they you know are they are they audio are they orally impaired? A U R A L, you know do they have mobility issues? All these things kind of contribute to it. So I, I think the best product design, I think feels obvious at the end because it's taking these it's taking these opportunities in stride and solving for all of them together in like an elegant way. And, and designers are always sort of trying to figure out like what's the What's the most elegant approach to this? What's the most elegant design? And a mistake you can make is thinking that the most elegant design is the simplest design or the cleanest mm-hmm. or the most minimal. But mm-hmm. elegance is, transcends that minimalism. Elegance is about um, the, the clearest and most beautiful solution to, uh, you know, 10 problems with one thing. And that's like mathematicians talk about this a lot, like this math about beautiful equations, things that are so small and satisfying, but solve for, say, 10 things at the same time. And that's what elegant design is to me. And good product design is solving for all this whole entire gamut of things at the exact same moment. And the one design solves for all of them. That's the the elegant design, not the one that's just like, you know, white, (laughs) you know, quote minimalist (laughs) or whatever. I I love it. I was, uh, I felt myself uh, get excited as you were talking because you were taking the words right out of my mouth um, of, of the, Things that I have observed in good design, whether it be digital or physical, right? And so for me, as a little person, I often have to think 
probably even more about physical design than I do about digital design. And I do intend on actually uh, a little bit later um, down the road having an episode specifically on physical design. But same principles, you know, ultimately apply. And the great example about one-handed use, because I always kind of use the, like, ramp for you know, as this is a physical example, but the a ramp outside of a, a building for people that have um, wheelchairs or scooters or whatever, it might also help the person that sprained their ankle temporarily yeah. or something like that. And but where I feel like you really hit the nail on the head is empathy. And that is something that I self-identify with uh, a, a lot. And I think it, it's put me in the position to even do this show or what I had intend to do with this show, because I think the more empathetic that you are, the more people you can draw to your, you know, to you if you want. And the example that you talked about where you had external anxiety or, or empathy, um, I have experienced that before, not, uh, on singing shows, but like on uh, The Prophet, where I'm, sure. I'm like watching this person give this presentation in front of these, you know, insanely influential people, I guess. I have had to, to teach myself how to get out of that mindset. I think I've been somewhat successful. I still think that there are situations where I would still feel that way, but I always try to think in the in the sense like this person they wake up and they put their pants on the same way that you do. Well, maybe not the right. same way that I do because I had hip and knee surgery and I put my <laughs> shorts on a little bit strangely. But uh, as far as the metaphor goes, it, it still stands the same. And you know, we're all human beings, right? And I think the more empathetic that you can be is. It is so far, if you think that being empathetic is a weakness, you're so far off from what it, reality, that it's not even funny. And, um, I, I find myself and I, and I tell people this too, one of my weaknesses is being too empathetic. And I, you know, you gave a, a clear cut example of literally, you know, an external feeling that you have, but. And sometimes I have to like slap my hand and be like, okay, you can't, you can't get yourself worked up over this problem that this person has because you have no control over it. Right. And so my, my instinct is always to go into like this fix mode, I guess, especially when it comes to technology solution, I always want to help people. And oftentimes I can, and I love doing it. Right. I love, I love helping people answer questions that they have about, you know, a certain, you know, app or whatever, because usually most of the time I can do it quickly and save them time. And I, you know, enjoy helping people. And I get that sense of euphoria for myself when I successfully help someone. And, uh, but finally, the example that you gave where 10, 10 problems coming together to be resolved with one solution First of all, that made me that, that I actually felt like ASMR relief uh, <laughs> when when you said that because it 
the times that I get so excited, most excited, are when uh, new software or apps or even hardware comes out that makes things either A, more efficient, or B, solves a problem that I've experienced. But when they combine and are even multiplied, they it is just, that is the ultimate feeling. Can you think right. of an example uh, in your personal experience um, where you've experienced that like euphoric aha moment? I mean, it, you know, from a from a product, I guess from a product perspective, I could think about it. I mean, my my favorite feature or product, I would say, you know, top three of, of the last X number of years, and you're never going to be able to guess this. My favorite thing is when iOS introduced the ability to crop and edit screenshots and screen recordings. So, you know, for, for many, many, many years in iOS, you, know, you take screenshots, great. And then, you know, the Photos app evolved to allow for photo editing. Okay, you know, you can change filters, you can crop and stuff like that. Okay. You know, this goes back to what we talked about, um, you know, two-dimensional images, square images on Instagram, evolving to TikTok, multi-sensory video, audio, dancing, the whole thing, and then going to AR. It's really the same kind of dimensionality of you can edit images on your phone, and then you can edit screen captures of your phone. And the reason I think that's so transformative and and I'll guess I guess elegant is when you can take a screen capture, you know, a screen recording of your phone or a screenshot and then you can edit it down and then you can share it. It removes all of the barriers around sharing content and permissions, the right com- the right country do you have the, the the copyrights to do this? The rights management, all that junk, right? Like you know, you know how hard it is to just share like a five second clip of like a movie you watched with somebody else. Like it's just you know, oh, I rented it on here and blah blah blah. But like just the, just the ability to take a screen capture of my phone of like an animated GIF, and I do say GIF. I'm sure everybody disagrees, but uh, take that screen capture, crop it down so it's just that that media. And then share it out, right? <laughs> it's it's transformative because you know otherwise, how else you know how else would people do that? And I really think this I and, and you can kind of see this like promulgating through society if you look at memes, and then you look memes that have been shared for a while. The quality degrades. Because as people taking screenshots and they're doing this and they're saving it as crappy or it's time or somebody takes a screenshot on a lower resolution screen phone and they send it off. You can see this kind of like in society. So like that, that sort of, you know, this idea about accessibility, it doesn't just have to do with, um, say, physical, you know, physical accessibility. It's also just people can access technology regardless of their economic situation or their social class or where they were born or anything like that. Like everybody has the ability to use these tools, these simple functions. And I think small things like that add up to sort of the internet cultural revolution that's happening, you know, through all these different social media platforms and the fluidity that kids have and younger people have with creating content. 
right? It's all these tools put together that they're just, they know the, they know the right ways to kind of fit it together to make, like you said, like that viral TikTok video or that super creative TikTok video or, you know, that amazing Instagram story or, you know, from the idea of Snapchat and AR, these AR lenses. And, you know, getting to that, that point about what are the, what are the tools that are making the future accessible from a, from a product standpoint, Snapchat has been really leading the way on these AR lenses that you can create, that you can mix, you can remix, you can make your own. They have a whole studio application that you can use to make these crazy immersive augmented reality 3D data-driven things by folks who don't know how to program, right? They don't know how to write the code to do it. And like, you know, that's another good example of like things I you know, that was not, and again, accessible to me when I was younger because the, tool, the the barrier to entry, the tools to enter, just like a glimmer of that market of making like three-dimensional animated things in the night in the 90s. It's like, what do I, I work on the matrix? Like, no, I can't afford that stuff, right? Now it's like, you know, Snapchat provides these simple tools and kids can just make anything, right? So it's this unbelievable um, accessibility, no matter where you are, you can use these tools that I literally couldn't afford you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago. I mean, you know, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. I I feel like it kind of what you're, you're getting at is like virality promotes further virality. Right. Right. And, and people not just from a tools perspective, but from a, Oh, I see that person doing it. So now I realize I can do it, but I might be able to do it maybe better is a subjective term. I don't like using yeah, just kind of terms, you know, but, creative in a different avenue. Right. And it's, yeah. it's totally in the eye of the beholder, but um, you know, saying, Oh, I can do this this way. And it might become even more viral. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. And about you know, the aspect of virality, you know, it feels like there's um, two sides of that coin. One is, you know, people who do these terrible pranks in order to get notoriety slash virality and, and where the person you're pranking doesn't like it. And that's, you know, and it, that's not number one, that's not a prank. Both people are supposed to laugh afterwards, right? Like this idea of like doing dumb things for virality, that's like not what we're talking about. It's definitely like how to be creative in a really unbelievable way. Um, to, that will lead to virality because people will see it and are entertained and respect that creativity. Like that is where that's, that's always going to be the future, right? Like, yes, you can become a celebrity and, and become viral and or wealthy by being a bad person. That's been true since the dawn of civilization. <laughs> you can also do that by being extremely smart and creative and showing your true self and the things that are, make you interesting, right? Like Billie Eilish plays ukulele. Like she, you know, she oh, wow. started off playing ukulele. One of her, you know, she has a number of songs that use a ukulele. But like, you know, if you said in the '90s or the 2000s, like, oh, I play ukulele. I mean, kids would look at you like you're the the least cool person in the universe. But then, by 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 seeing the creative output of, say, a, an instrument like a ukulele or like other types of apps that can output stuff, it makes it accessible and it makes it cool and interesting. And I always love when things that used to be not cool from a creative aspect 
uh, become cool again and become interesting because they get remixed with the technologies of today that like level them up from an interesting standpoint. Like I'm always, I'm always kind of enamored by that stuff. Um, you know, like a, you know, name other instruments that are quote uncool. I guarantee that you can find somebody on TikTok playing an accordion in the most fascinating way you've ever seen in your life. And they have an amazing viralness and, and, you know, a number of following because of that. So like, I love that aspect of like people diving into their, their own interests and their own sort of geekdom in like the deepest possible way. And then creating something that everybody loves and identifies with, because that just grows the bubble of, of creation and, and love all around. I saw this guy and I, I don't want to butcher exactly what he did, but he created a TikTok randomly and it was like a, a, a Scottish sea song. I don't know what you call him. Um, I saw a video about him and all of a sudden, literally it went viral. And then now I'm not kidding. Like within a month, he had a record deal just because he was doing something <laughs> that he loved from his culture. That was, you know, unusual to an extent to, to a lot of the people watching it. Uh, but that is, that's another way that, you know, even just technology levels the playing field. You say things that used not to be cool, becoming cool again. That's, once again, it's all in the eye of the beholder, right? And it makes you kind of realize to an extent, especially as a society, whether this is great or not, because uh, oftentimes it's not so good, but how others' views affect your own and where, you know, crowds... I, I, I always try to check myself whenever I am getting excited about something or sharing something or like starting to get into something and I'm, I, I want to have a self-assessment with myself and be like, are you enjoying this because you enjoy it? Or are you enjoying this because people are like, quote unquote, something is telling you to enjoy it. Right. It's, right. it's, and, and I, I, I have this conflict with movie reviews. Right. And, I, and in some ways, I love it when a review is positive because then I go in like more hyped, right? But then when it's negative, I go in with this preconceived mindset, and it's it, it's it's but it's a rock and a hard place because it it can be used as you even said for for good or for evil, and. Uh, I think of this uh, analogy that I heard a, a long time ago. Uh, you can either become uh, the tallest building by keeping on building yourself until you're taller than the other buildings, or you can become the tallest building by smashing down the buildings around you. And <laughs> that, that came to mind uh, when you were, when you were talking. And I always try to build my own building. Right. Um, you know, try to be not not in a way where I like I want to influence people to to like what I like. I just get so excited. I I I hope that it comes across. You know, even in the time where we become friends, like I I really try to be a genuine person, and 
when I when I share stuff or when I like stuff or whatever, and I and I'm like, oh man, Mike would think this is funny, so especially as I've gotten to know you more. And it, it, once again, this is like a subset of empathy that I do believe is a real strength of mine is seeing something. Uh, a, a news article or something funny or whatever and knowing who is going to get something right. from that news article or think that this particular thing is funny. Whereas I'm like, okay, that other person would not think this is funny. Um, and you know, my, my, my friend the other day was like, how do you keep up with all of this stuff? And I, I don't know. It's just the way my brain works. Like I make these mental notes on people's files, I guess you could say in my head. Right. And whether I mean to or not, like, I know if I see something about Supreme that I'm like, okay, I'm going to tell Mike about it. Right. Um, but you know, totally. a lot of people couldn't care less. No, that's perfect. I mean, that's, that's just, I think you're just describing the human condition of like compartmentalizing our relationships with people. Right. Like I do the exact same thing. I will see a technology thing, or whatever. I'm like, that's a will thing. A hundred percent. You know, it's not a somebody else thing. It's a will thing, right? And then vice versa. You know, I'll see something random about whatever, you know, I don't know. It's, it's actually a pretty short list. I pretty much send you everything. But like, you know, the, the, the idea you had early on or, or a little bit, you know, a little bit before about making sure that you're not disliking something because the crowd dislikes it or liking something because the crowd likes it. You know, one of the, and I feel like I haven't seen anybody talk about this, but like one of the most concrete ways that I experience this is if I'm on Facebook and I see a Facebook post and you know how it shows all the different emoji reactions that yeah. people have, right? If you go to a Facebook post and it's got 15 of this 15 reactions where they're all the crying, laughing, you know, happy emoji, there's like a, there's like a 100% chance I'm going to pick the same emoji yeah. and then vice versa. If you see somebody like a good example is when they introduce the care hug emoji mm -hmm. where it wasn't just mm -hmm. the heart. It was like the hug in the heart. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I will see people post something that's, you know, difficult for their life or whatever. And I guess I would previously do like the heart, but if I see most people doing the care heart or hug heart thing, I'll do that. And <laughs> it's, it's what you were saying. Like, am I doing this? Cause I'm just following it versus whatever. It's so natural. And I'm sure Facebook designers mm -hmm. are aware of this. Like I do this, you know, I do this constantly and it's, and it's not, I wouldn't say it's a bad thing. Like I wouldn't say in this particular thing. Yeah. It can be you know, neutral, right? It, it, it could be right. good, bad or neutral. Like in that case, that's a neutral thing. It's not negatively or positively necessarily affecting one way or the other, whether you choose the heart or the care. Right. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think it's fine. Like going along and showing that you're part of a group in a positive way. There's nothing wrong with that. Your idea about you know reading the, the video reviews, the movie reviews, totally resonates with me because I'm not very picky with movies. Like I love a lot of movies. Like I, I sort of just like yes, I like this movie, or no, I don't like it. Like I don't really have like a, a spectrum of love hate. I guess I'm like oh that's a good movie. Sure, I'll watch it. Right. Um, and the, and the biggest bummer, maybe it's not a bummer, but like I'll see it has like negative reviews and then I watch it. I'm like, that was awesome. Like, am I weird that I liked it? And it was awesome. <laughs> Is everybody else wrong? You know, I try not to dwell on that part, you know? Uh -huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, that totally affects me, affects me too. Yeah. 
once again, it it is human nature. It it's all about how you react to it, though. I think everybody has these tendencies, but it's all about how you respond to those tendencies, and right. that really that really makes up life. You know, it it does. Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know, is something moving you as a person in a more positive direction, positive for yourself? You're growing in a particular way. Or is it holding you back in some way? So, for example, like with, with your movie analogy, you know, are some people avoiding certain types of movies or films that maybe were panned by critics, but if they saw it, it would benefit their life in some kind of a positive, in a positive direction? I'm sure there's many people out there that, that you know, that, that people would fall into. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I consume, it's kind of like, you know, like you said, like, you know, your friend was like, you know, where do you find all this stuff to send? Like, you know, how do you, how do you come across this? And I'm like, I'm, I'm very similar. You know, I consume all different types of media and YouTube and Reddit and Twitter and whatnot. And, you know, certain things will sort of stick with me or I'll remember, you know, come up in conversation. I don't know where I saw it. I don't know who said yeah. it. You know, oh, I saw that thing on Twitter. I read this thing on blah, blah, blah. Like, I have no idea where, when it happened. But like the the nuance of it or the little a little nugget of it will stick in my head and it'll like, you know, bubble up in a conversation or let me think about something in a slightly different way down the road. So like, I don't really begrudge myself too much about consuming content or consuming so much content. One, uh, I, I guess New Year's resolution, unfortunately I made it for last year, but you know, 2020 was sort of a bum year. So now I'm continuing it this year. One of my, one of my New Year's resolutions was to create more than I consume to mm-hmm. like put more into the, into the universe than I, mm-hmm. than I take in. And unfortunately, I take in a lot. So I sort of have mm-hmm. to like output a lot. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things I've been trying to be more conscious about is making sure that my interactions on a screen are output in some way or are driving me towards some positive outcome in some way. And then if they're not, just be conscious like, okay, you're just like doing nothing right now. Like, you know, you're, I'm sitting in my driveway for six minutes before I walk in my house, you know, on my phone. Like, you know, be conscious of those dumb things uh, and, and and know that you're doing them versus just like, you know, it's like binge eating. I'm like, you know, binge consuming. Just be conscious of that mm-hmm. and, you know, just try to try to do better <laughs> in some way. Yeah. And there's there's two things. I, uh, one comment and one question. The comment is since you just left on that note, I think a lot of people that passively consume feel like it is a detriment to them. I don't know. Like, you know, you see all these people saying like, I'm, I'm logging off on Facebook for three months right. and they're, they're back right. tomorrow. Um, <laughs> but those kind of things, I look at that and I say to myself, while I do consume a lot, First of all, it's just my nature. It's my personality. Um, I, I don't feel like I do it in an unhealthy way. And the reason being is because I'm such an avid consumer. I'm also an avid person who goes in and looks at options for things. How is this? How can I leverage the platform that is delivering the information to allow me to control it? in a way that is not going to make me do it in an an unhealthy way. And I think that so many people, 
they don't either have the patience to do it, they don't care to do it, and so then they end up getting overwhelmed, and it does become a negative thing, and, you know, not everybody is into technology like we are, and so that's fine. Uh, Everybody has their thing, right? But, like, I can tell you the first thing that I do, like, when I'm playing a, a video game or I'm getting a new piece of hardware or technology, I go into the settings, I don't know about you, but like I go in and I'm like, before I even experience this in the way that uh, is default, I am going to make sure that I have the best first impression that I can possibly have so that I am not getting a false representation of whatever is being experienced or delivered to me. Does that make sense? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I like that idea about controlling the consumption um, like I have lots of things muted, like lots of words muted on Twitter. Um, I don't know how many, like, you know, mm-hmm. probably like 200 words and phrases, mm-hmm. you know, muted on Twitter. Same. And, you know, it's, it's understanding. And again, you know, I hate using the food analogy, right. But it's like, if you're sort of putting junk into your brain or your body, then, you know, and I'm not a scientist, but it's going to make you feel a certain way. I don't know what that way is going to be, but it might be negative. So if you can control that input, then at least you have some control over that. And, you know, I've been more aggressive with my, <clears throat> with my muting in the last six months or so or whatever. And like, I'm happier on Twitter now. Like I'm less like, you know, anxious, you know, of trying to avoid things or, or doom scrolling, so to speak. Like I, I try to, and, and same thing on Instagram. Like I follow, like on Instagram, I follow artists, um, mm-hmm. like pretty much just artists, basically like tattoo artists or digital artists or painters or whatever. And, you know, I, I do hear folks saying, oh, you know, my, my Instagram experience is depressing. All I see are people enjoying things or models or whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you do have control over that. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you can just not follow those things. You can follow things that make you happy and bring you joy. Yeah. Right? And, you know, and, and that's, that's why, you know, I love Instagram. It's not like I'm obsessed with it and I'm feeling bad about myself because I'm seeing people that I wish I could be. It's just like create, it's like creative inspiration, like injected into me, you know, and, totally. and Twitter is like not exactly the same, but you know, it's, it's just information that I can use maybe in the future as part of something, you know, I think it's a philosophy that I've always had in my life well before social media and perhaps to an extent too. Once again, we we grew up in this generation where we didn't have it and then we did. So we were able to kind of learn it at a pace where we kind of got one and then two and then three versus the late adopter, let's just say, who all of a sudden right. they feel like they're trying to drink from a fire hose. And then all they want to do is just quit because it's, it's just frustrating. And I get that too. Um, but I, I've al- I was always raised to kind of like, surround yourself with people that make you feel that way. Right. So like make you feel positive and um, surround your people, surround yourself with people who are going to build you up rather than mess with your head or give you anxiety or whatever be the case. And it's so much easier to do that with social media because that it's not sentient. Well, Right. To an extent. 
I guess you could say algorithms are, are a little bit, but, um, no, but you know, they're not people. So feelings aren't involved or whatever. So you can guilt free, just mute a word if you don't want to hear about it. Right. Right. Um, the question I wanted to ask you is I find myself, I, I, in general, I typically don't overthink things, but sometimes I do. And sometimes I even straight up ask, uh, but, it, but if I'm in a situation where I don't feel like I can, do you ever feel like when you're with a group of people um, who also enjoy talking, right? Or enjoy sharing things. Do you ever feel like you have so much to say about everything that you feel like a one-upper? Um, so I'm somebody who, who doesn't like to talk about myself or just talk in general. Like, you know, if somebody asks me how work is going, like it's going fine. We had some meetings, you know, whatever. Like that's basically my answer to that. Right. I'm not like, I, I just feel like my, me speaking about my life or things that I might know something about is not interesting for me to say it. It's more interesting for me to hear somebody else say something that I don't know. Like I'm just saying, if I'm saying things I know, it's not interesting. It's like I, I try to, I guess I over-index on like hearing and understanding the other person's situation and their thoughts, diving deeper and asking questions about what they know um, versus kind of like offering up things on my side. I guess just I feel like it's sort of uninteresting, you know, but that's just a weird, I don't know. That's just because I'm a weirdo, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, uh, I think it can go both ways, right? Um, I just happen to have this innate desire to share, 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 whether it be on social media, uh, whether it be in real life. And oftentimes I get complimented on it. And I think typically I get complimented on it because from people who feel the same way that you do. And, um, you know, maybe that we're, we're sitting around having a meal with friends and I end up leading the conversation by plucking out literally random topics um that just end up leading to a good overall conversation and you know having a good time but i i I hate it because when somebody might mention something that i know a lot about or let's just let's take this example uh and i cruise a lot and you know we're on a cruise you're just kind of like you're chill and you start you start to notice like little things because you have the time to right, and so when we go to something like a, a, a play in the theater or some kind of show in the theater, and I see somebody in front of me and they're they're playing with their iPhone, and they do something that is like not efficient right, or they do something that I think is wrong, I guess. It like I have this itch, like oh man, I need to let them know, like they don't have to do it that way, or something like that. It's it's kind of the same thing in a conversation. Like I have this itch that I need to contribute my experience with whatever said topic is, if I didn't bring it up. And sometimes I feel like I overdo that, um, especially I, I think it depending, like I said, on the person. Uh, or people receiving that, but uh, I, I catch myself feeling like, oh man, do I sound like a one-upper? You know, because well, nobody you're, you're likes a one-upper. 
you're like a connoisseur of technology. You're an expert in so many different areas and you're a curator of the right products, the right tools, the right things to do. And if you have that skill, that talent, whether it's somebody who is assessing, I don't know, a collection of wine, or if you're, if you know the perfect, like we talked about before this, you know, before the podcast, you know, the audio processing tools that you know of, I didn't know about, right? Like Mm -hmm. you are the one to discover and find those things. So Mm -hmm. I think people, I think that's, I mean, that's what I like a lot about you and the things that you talk about is this, you know, I've looked at 20 things and this is why these one, two things are the best. And here's why, like that is like your brand, so to speak, not just on Twitter and on podcasts on the web, but as a person, you're curious and you found out the answer and you want to share the answer, right? So I don't see that as a negative at all. Um, and I think that people that are interacting with you about that stuff, like they know they're going to benefit from your expertise in that area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they're open to, to listen and to, and to learn. I think, I think where I start to get off the rails is when I think I'm an expert at something and I want to share my opinion about it. And, um, my wife gets on me all the time. It's a constant like thing she, she brings up. And it's basically, you know, just because you like it that way, doesn't mean everybody likes it that way. And that is definitely something that is also a weakness. And just because I think it's the, the best way and I, I believe it in my heart doesn't mean that this person has to get the same type of uh, you know, phone or car or computer or whatever, um, because their needs might be a little bit different. But generally, though, I I do feel like I'm good at assessing whoever I'm talking to's needs to to give whatever opinion I'm about to give. Uh, but but a lot of times I think it is unsolicited, and we talk a lot about uh, at work about change management, and even. Um, like in uh, our, our Slack group, it's like, you know, we want to make this new channel or we want to do, you know, we want to move platform to this other chat uh, platform. That's great. Like I made that quick decision on my own and I'm ten, I tend personally to make snap decisions on a lot of things, whether they're big or small. Um and even once again, like my wife will be like, I can't get over X thing just like you can. And I, as, a, as an adult, I have, uh, I've tried to teach myself or, you know, open my mind, I guess, to, to people not always feeling the same as I do, or perhaps not receiving it the way that I thought they would. And sure. some of that, some of that has to do with my approach and some of that now some people they just they are literally like will what computer should i get tell me blah right. and other people are like hey i'm looking at a computer and i'll be like oh you want this this and this and like it's almost that i have this weird uh feeling of being offended if they don't go with the thing that i recommend and i'm like will you do not need to take this personally they might have a different need or maybe it's something out of their control that is leading them to this ultimate resolution. So definitely something that, you know, once again, it's kind of a gift and a curse, but 
I'm trying to, to be better. And I am like consciously aware of it as I've gotten older. Yeah. From a, from a design perspective, kind of getting back to, I guess, to the first things we were talking about, you know, how do you think about users and people as you're building design? You know, this great phrase that I heard at a previous company was uh, designers should fall in love with the customer's problem, not your own solution. So we fall in love with the customer's problem. It's only going to get deeper and more gratifying over time. Your solution is a, a, a sheet in the wind of time. It will change over time. What's here today is going to be different tomorrow. But the, the anxiety and the problems that people feel will always be a real thing. And you can always you know, put your hat on that or, or latch onto that as, a, as an anchor as you move forward. So you know, that empathy thing that we talked about, you know, it's really driven by, you know, just un- putting yourself, understanding someone's struggle. That is the thing you should be interested in. And the solution, you know, should just be kind of this, this natural byproduct. So I guess, you know, it, it's, it feels similar to what you were just saying um, of, you know, talking to friends where they need a certain technology, you know, or car advice or whatever, obviously, because, you know, you're into cars, your family's into cars, mm-hmm. like this idea about like, what is the right thing for me? Um, you know, understand, like, understanding their struggle and loving that, like loving the, uh, uh, the process of understanding that struggle. Mm-hmm. And then your solution is like at a lower tier of, yeah. of the, the gratification, you know, the gratification is sort of like that person shared with me their problem, their struggle in life. I'm gratified to hear that, you know, I solved in this particular way, but the most important part is they, you know, they chose to share with me. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure that, um, and you probably can even think of some people like this, but that there are designers out there that uh, won't check their ego in order for the best solution. Right. And I feel like that'll always be a hindrance. And same with me. Like if I don't learn how to more importantly, not necessarily the angle, but if I don't learn how to uh, approach someone the right way about my opinion, um, it's not going to be as impactful. Right. So if, right. if a designer's out there and he is, or she is saying, Oh, I, I believe this is the right thing. And it gets shipped. And then, you know, 90% of people don't know how to use it. And then all they want to say is, Oh, well that's, this is because you don't know what you're doing or whatever. Um, I, I, right. there are certainly, I think there's people like that in all walks of life. And it's unfortunate because it's a turnoff, first of all, and ultimately a detriment because you're never going to be as successful unless you're not like that. Yeah, I think that's that sort of has been stopping me from from writing about design um, in a prescriptive way over the last few years. You know, I used to write tutorials on how to do X or you know whatever, and I've sort of stopped doing that um, because I. I didn't like the idea of my solution being something that somebody else finds and then chooses to be their solution also. Like I sort of like the idea of folks arriving at their own solution. I mean, that's sort of a cop-out. Like I could write articles that are sure. less prescriptive and stuff like that, right? Um, but yeah, you know, that it, it sort of comes back to like this ego thing and maybe, um, you know, there's a spectrum. Maybe I'm too far on one of the end of the spectrum, but like I very much don't like to talk about um, 
certain things out in public because I don't want anybody to feel bad in any way about something that I'm saying or something that I, that I did or have or whatever. Um, and, and, you know, that's from a personal angle, that's something that sort of bothers me about kind of the current state of, of internet culture is this idea of like flexing these things that you own, um, trying to make it seem like you are better than somebody else in, in some way, mm-hmm. because really, I mean, I feel like growth as a, for individuals and then also as a society is if you see other people who is a billionaire or somebody who does not have a home as they're all people and they're the same as you, you can reach mm-hmm. out to either of them in the same way. And I'm, you know, one of the funny things about like at work, you know, that I've always done is I've always felt like I could send a Slack message to the CEO. I could send an email yeah. to yeah. the head of whatever. Same. Because we're both, yeah, we're both people that are working towards this common thing, right? Like I don't, like I don't treat them in this in this way, I'm not, they're not like an idol. On a pedestal. Yeah, a pedestal. exactly. Exactly, yeah, yeah. right? Right. You know, and I think that helps as a human to see everybody as other humans and you're trying to solve for them or help them or, or interact with them in some way, not, not again, idolize. And, and that's, you know, from a, from like an Instagram standpoint of like, oh, I follow these artists, you know, I, I guess I have a healthy relationship with, with Instagram because when I see some incredible art, I immediately think, wow, that's so cool. I wonder how they did it. How yeah. can I approach that in a way that at least I understand? I never had this like, oh man, I can't do that. I'll never be able to figure that out. Like it's always sort of a positive framing, I guess. Um, yeah. And same. I think that's just, you know, it's healthy for me, for, for folks. It's healthy for me at least. I'm not going to prescribe it to everybody else, but you know, I don't have that same kind of anxiety. I guess I get excited about other success, not <laughs> jealous or anything like that. Uh Great point about feeling like you can, you know, reach out to slash give feedback to, you know, upward management. And I feel like that is a big problem in our society is people being scared to do that or like, you know, having the reaction of like, whoa, you said you said that to who or, you know, it it can be some mundane thing. But it's the people that are willing to do that that really push us forward and it makes me think of uh, the example of there was, uh, and I, I know, once again, I don't know the specific name, but I, I do know it happened. It was like in the late 1800s, um, this lady was being chased in the middle of the street and she was screaming for some help and uh, she ended up being found dead the next day, even though like 50 people had watched it happen. And oh, right. that was because all 50 people assumed that someone else would help. And that is such a profound like example of ending up in a place you don't want to be, especially like as a group, because as a company, because you were too scared or too whatever, um, to 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 bring it up or to mention it and and i also uh one other example i really love simon sinek or cynic are you familiar with him no i'm not um there is a fantastic video that i really actually kind of changed my perspective of a lot of things that he did um i still follow him on different platforms but um he he did this one uh it was it's called all about why or like uh, getting to why as opposed to okay. what and how 
But anyway, he I saw him in an interview just like a couple of days ago, and he was giving um, the this answer to this guy, and he was uh, telling a story about how he went to this like big wig. Everybody was like a C level person, and this I don't know coder or somebody was had given this very technical explanation, right? And all the C-level people were, like, you know, nodding their heads or whatever. But then he didn't, he, you know, he didn't really have any personal skin in the game um, as the as the guest. And he just was like, hey, look, X person who wrote this instruction, I might be a little bit stupid, so please bear with me, but I don't understand any of this. And she... I think he made it sound like she kind of had that ego thing a little bit at first. Um, but then all of a sudden, all the other C-level people, one by one, began to admit they didn't understand it either. And he said they were about to spend like millions of dollars, millions of dollars on something that A, they didn't understand, so B, they would never use. Mm. And it only took one person speaking up to realize everybody in the room felt the same way. So that that's definitely been an epiphany on um, that I've heard frequently, like in the last three, four years. And I've tried to let it impact me in a positive way. And I've tried to put myself out there in a way that is always respectful, but also I feel like managers don't get the feedback that they probably even want. Um, because everyone's always too like afraid or whatever to say anything. Um, so I, right. I'm, I'm thankful to work somewhere where I feel like I can do that first of all, but I don't think I would want to work anywhere where I didn't feel like I could do that. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying this, this, this culture of putting people on a pedestal or feeling like you can't approach them, you know, on the kind of the, the internet media side, this idea of quote, stan culture, people who are like hyper fans mm-hmm. of a particular celebrity or a group. If you kind of dive into the, 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 the deepness of Twitter for, for, you know, people that are say K-pop stands or, or whatever Taylor Swift stands, like I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan and yeah, I listen to K-pop, whatever, but like this idea about, um, quote, standing them as in, in Stan comes from the Eminem song where Stan is a hyper fan and he ends up killing himself and all this stuff. But um, you know, if you're a hyper fan of somebody, you put somebody on this insane pedestal and mm. you never see them for who they are as a person, you're always seeing this mm. complete positive aspect. You never understand that there are some, some negative sides to it. You know, mm. that's not a good thing like this, you know, for example, you know, <laughs> Tiger Woods, and I, you know, who's been, I've been a huge fan of for a very long time, obviously has a number of personal problems and, and has had a number of personal problems over the years. Um, you know, something that I think a lot of Tiger Woods fans have grown to understand is that he is a person with flaws, um, that, you know, is not perfect in every way. And I think that's a healthy way to look at things. Like everybody is another human that has, you know, problems going on that you're not aware of, um, that, you know, you need to just, you know, be more empathetic. So I think that kind of solves a, solves a lot of problems. I was going to say like people like that, it's almost like they lack empathy, um, yeah, I, I agree. And you look at uh, the documentary. You watched that, right? Right, the HBO yeah. HBO one that came out? Yep. Yeah, I mean, they they talked about his, you know, first love. And it seemed seemed to be that the main thing he was attracted to 
in this person is that they made him feel normal. Right. You know, they, they accepted him for everything that he was. And, um, that was something that he hadn't really experienced because his parents were absolutely psychotic and, um, (laughs) like pushed him to the brink. Uh, so basically you're, you're getting it at home and then you're getting it, you know, at your job, basically, of all these people that just want you to be 150% all the time. It's not healthy. Like, you gotta right. have some kind of decompression. Otherwise, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a, um, what's not a sprint? What's a, what's the, um, I thought you were gonna say it's a fool's it's game. A, it's, what, it's a marathon, <laughs> well, not a it's sprint. It's a marathon. Right, right. Whatever, you know. Uh, I, you, you always kind of have to take everything like that with a grain of salt, but yeah. Um, it's been awesome talking to you. What a great conversation! Thanks. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, can maybe you let us know like something in the design world that is happening or burgeoning that you're looking forward to, and also uh, let people know where they can uh, they can find you. Yeah. Um. You know, I've, I've always sort of, I guess, played at the intersection of, of like programming and, and art. Like I've, I've, I've long kind of experimented with like generative art, um, kind of glitch art. So, you know, that feels like it's in, you know, resurgence in some ways, or maybe people think it's more interesting these days. So I've been trying to make more of it. Um, so yeah, I've been posting that to my, to my Instagram. So, you know, Instagram.com slash flyosity. Uh, so I've been posting some of those kind of experiments and art experiments, but yeah, I just think the, you know, the landscape of, of making interesting things on the internet is right at the inflection point and just going vertical, right? Whether you're making videos on TikTok, you're making music, you're sharing it, you're making art. It just seems like the, the possibilities are, um, endless for, for creative folks these days, or even folks who are maybe don't feel creative, but everyone is right. So it's that democratization of tools, making things easier to, to make and create. And then it's the ease of sharing them online. I feel like this, this cool kind of combination is happening. So I'm super excited about kind of the future design and art uh, in a big way. Awesome. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week. Thank you for being the inaugural guest. Fantastic Thanks. job. <laughs> I think you definitely set the bar very high. Um, but but no, uh, it's it's been great talking with you. Um, maybe we can have you back again sometime. But until then, um, talk to you later. Awesome. Thanks, Will.